So we come to the part of the process that may actually be the most difficult. Through all of the building of the wall and, and preparing and, you know, standing up against the threats and working on internal strife, this one may actually be the most difficult process that Nehemiah starts in this whole thing. And what is he doing? He is now protecting future victories. You know, they, they kind of have done what they wanted to do. I mean, this, this would be a moment that a lot of people would kind of want to just pat themselves on the back and say, good job, you did something no one else could do, uh, write it down for history and, and cash it in. But Nehemiah knew building the wall was just the first step. And now it's time for the real work to start, and that is to not only rebuild the culture, and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel as a people, but also to put things in place to keep this from happening again. Because what is it that happened? I mean, again, you know, in our biblical history, why was rebuilding the wall necessary? Well, it was necessary because the people of Israel had been unfaithful to God over and over and over. I mean, you read the Old Testament, and it sounds like a, a stuck record. It just keeps seems to repeat the same thing over and over. And they even realize that by this point, that you know, their, God is faithful to them and blesses them, and in that blessing, they start looking at the world around them, and they started Baal worship and, and, and pagan practices, and so they go down, and because they go down and start doing that, God oppresses them, God punishes them to get them to repent, they don't like the oppression. They turn back to God and say, God, we're sorry. We did this. And God says, okay, I'll have mercy on you. And he pulls them out of it and he blesses them. And what do they do? Back down again. And we just repeat this circle over and over and over for a thousand years. And finally, God says, that's enough. And he sends the nation into captivity into Babylon and says, that's it, I'm done. Now, did he abandon them as a people? No. But this Baal worship and, and accepting the Canaanite gods, if you will, the pagan gods of their culture, God said, that's it, I'm going to fix this once and for all. I'm done sharing my glory with pagan deities with this, you know, godless culture around you. I'm tired of sharing my people and my glory that is rightfully mine. I'm not going to share it anymore. And so he wipes out the city of Jerusalem, sends the people into captivity for 70 years. And so then they come out of captivity and God restores them and now they have to rebuild. And Nehemiah knows the story. He knows the history. He knows the failures. And so after they finish the wall and they post the guards and he puts godly people in charge of the city. Remember, he put his, his brother in charge of things and he put the godly people in charge. Then he calls Ezra the priest and they start reading the law together again. Now, what is that? They get back into scripture. And he has the people gather and they just start reading and they start reading public reading of scripture and, and and they start confessing sin, and they start rebuilding their spiritual foundation as a people. 
Why? Because without the spiritual foundation, there can be no success later on. Now, Nehemiah has done something amazing here, and clearly he was a very blessed, a very gifted and talented man of integrity. for, For him to take on the responsibilities he did and make it happen as quickly. Now, obviously, we know God was in it, And that's why ultimately it happened. But God uses people's gifts. And that gift that was in Nehemiah was that he he could just get things done. He, He was a leader. He was a man of integrity. And he wasn't somebody that was going to easily back down from a threat. Uh, He he was a a very brave man. But eventually, Nehemiah is going to die. Eventually, Nehemiah is going to reach a point in life where he's not going to be able to lead and take on the responsibility that he has. Eventually, Nehemiah is going to have to pass the baton to someone else. Now, if you were Nehemiah, would you look forward to that day? You put this much work in and you put all of this in so that one day you've got to trust somebody else and say, here it is. Can I trust you with it? Now, here's the thing. We all have to do that at some point. We all have to do it. King Solomon lamented it in Ecclesiastes. He talks about, I looked at everything that I built knowing that one day I'm going to have to pass it off to somebody else. And what did he do? It says, and I despaired. (laughs) Because he thought they didn't earn it. They didn't build it. I'm just going to have to hand this off to somebody else. And so immediately what does nehemiah start to do he starts to rebuild the spiritual foundation of the people he goes straight for what is most important he doesn't establish new trade routes he doesn't go out and make sure that that the economy is going to be good and and all of that he knows all of that will happen in time but what he he makes sure what he uses his energy for is to reconnect the people with their god And so, look with me, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like they had church right? Let's gather together. Let's read from God's word. Let's worship him. Let's confess our sins. Let's confess the sins of our fathers. Let's figure out what faithfulness is together and let's move forward. That's really kind of what we should be doing regularly. And so the first thing Nehemiah does is says, you know what? We got to learn to worship God again. And he reintroduces them to the foundation of who 
they are. And that's what we have to do in our own lives. If we're to learn the lessons from Nehemiah, one of the things we have to do is to know the foundation. And what is that foundation for the Christian life? For a godly life? Worship, word, and prayer. It's that simple. It doesn't change. You can go all the way to the earliest parts of the Old Testament, and you can go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, and there are three consistent things that you're going to see present for those people who are walking with God, and that is that they worship Him, they study His Word, and they pray to Him in confession, in, in connection. They, they pray to Him to commune with Him, to have a relationship with God, to strengthen their lives, but worship, Word, and prayer. It's something we come back to over and over and over. None of us will ever outgrow the need for these three things. We will never outgrow it. We will always need to worship God regularly. We will always need to remind ourselves of God's word, to study it, to live by it, to, to meditate upon it. And we will always have to commune with our God in prayer. And so Nehemiah knew if they were to succeed as a people, they had to be what God called them to be. And what is God's calling on all of our lives? A universal calling that he has for all of his people? Holiness. Holiness. He calls us to be set apart from the world. That's what holiness means. It means to be set apart, to be different. Now, what did Israel fall into? What did they do over and over again? They copied the world. They wanted to be like the world. And every time it led to trouble. They, they incorporated Baal worship. And God said, no, I am your God. You don't need to worship other deities. In fact, that's an affront to me. You don't worship Baal. You worship me. And then they said, but we want to be like the other nations. God, we want a king. We want to be like them. He says, you don't need a king. You know, he's just going to tax you and he's going to, he's going to send your, your young men off to war. You don't, I am your king. You don't need a king. Oh, but we need a king. We need a king. Okay. And they picked King Saul for themselves, who was a colossal failure. Over and over, they wanted to be like the world. When God created them and called them as a people, he says, I, you are my people set apart for my purposes. I want you to be holy as I am holy. Be set apart from the world. Now, does this not sound like a recurring theme even today for God's people? We, we want desperately and nobody's immune to this but for some reason there is a part of us that we just want to be cool we want the world to like us don't we i mean we do and we are so desperate for it sometimes that we just look for things like we want celebrities to be christian so that they'll speak out and it's like see we're we're cool we can be a we also are creative and there was this whole movement in the church called being relevant. How many of you heard those words so many times you wanted to just like remove it from the English language? I, I as a pastor, was one. I'm like, I'm tired of trying to be relevant. How about let's just try to be godly because God's always relevant. But we, we just have something inside us. We just, we desperately want and need to be accepted by the world when God said from the very beginning, what does he want? Be set apart from the world. 
Don't be friends with the world. Love God and be set apart from the world. And we have to be willing to do this. But how do we do it? Do we define it for ourselves? No, we have to get into God's word and do things the way he has told us to do it. We have to do this on his terms. And you see, the people of Israel here, they needed to be set apart, but they never actually really did the things God told them to do. There were festivals outlined in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Leviticus, that were never celebrated, ever. They never did it. And when we look back and think on some of these things that God had told them to do, think about what a wonderful thing it would have been for the people. Every seven years, your debts were to be eliminated. Sounds pretty good to me. But they didn't do it. Every 50 years, they were to have the year of Jubilee. And you know what that was? It was literally a reset on everything. If you had gone into slavery, you were now free. If you'd sold part of your land, it went back to your family. And like every 50 years, there was just kind of a leveling of everything. And God said, everybody, you're just supposed to spend the year just praising me and being grateful that I am your God and that I've given you this land. And in fact, you're supposed to enjoy it so much that everybody gets everything back and we're just going to start over every 50 years. Guess what? They never did it. They never did it because they were so busy trying to copy the world. They robbed themselves of the blessings God had for them. Now think of that. God had already laid it in place. He's like, you follow me, it's going to work. You do what I say to do, it's going to work. What did he tell him? He said, I will send rain in season. Do what I say, I'll send rain. Your crops will be bountiful. Your, your animals will produce like they're supposed to. Everything will work. Just follow me. And for some reason, they neglected it. Generation after generation refused to do it. Now, you had people come along every now and then and try to reform and say, hey, everybody, we should look at this. But they're the exception. They're the ones that stick out. You know, King Hezekiah, King Josiah. They're the ones they, they tried, but they just couldn't get people to really grab hold of it. And so after a time, God sent them into captivity. And so now they have to rediscover this foundation. They have to relearn the ways of God. Things that should have been passed along from generation to generation as this is just how we live. This is who we are. They're having to start over like they're hearing it for the first time. They're having to re realign their lives in ways that they probably had never even thought to do. And so in doing that, they had to reestablish the worship of God, understanding the word of God, and praying to God. Every single major revival the world has ever seen is centered on these three things. Every one of them. You will not find a movement of God that is legitimate that does not reinforce, reintroduce, and emphasize worship, word, and prayer. Why? Because that's how we connect to God. I mean, every time it, it comes back to the same place. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to do what God told us to do. 
I mean, I've got several verses here I want to read that talk about these three things. In Psalm 96, 7 through 9, listen to this. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. That is a call to worship. That's what worship is right there. In the New Testament, Jesus said this. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In talking about the word. And making the word a part of who we are. Psalm 119, 9 through 12. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Is that your heart? Teach me your ways, God. Well, where are his ways? They're right here. He has made it available for us in every conceivable way. In the New Testament, talking about the word of God, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God. That makes it our responsibility. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. God has placed a responsibility on us to know his word. And somewhere along the line, I think it's just human nature. I don't know that, you know, it's just what we do. But we hope that we can just learn the word of God by osmosis. If I go to church enough, I'll just kind of soak up enough of this that it'll, that it'll guide me. You know, if, if I find the, the right pastor He'll teach me well enough that 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 30 minutes that he gives us, you know, or if he's long-winded like me, a little longer, that, that 30 to 40 minutes he gives me on Sunday will be enough to carry me my whole week. It just doesn't. We have to invest ourselves in knowing the truth, in studying it, meditating on it. And then... Talking about prayer in Psalm 28, 1, it says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. This is a person desperate in prayer saying, God, I have to hear from you. Is that where your heart is? That you go through a week and it's like, God, I have to hear you. If I don't hear from you, God, I'm going to be like people that are dead. Because your words are life. Your presence is everything. Prayer has to be something that is not, some, you know, not a, a check on the list of things we have to do. Prayer should be something that we need to do. That we are joy, that, that it's a joy for us to do. Because we get to talk to God and God will talk to you. If prayer becomes a, a passionate part of your life, God is going to speak to you through those prayers. 
And of course, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, speaking of prayer, says praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. All prayer and supplication. That means prayers for yourself. That means prayers for God's strength for you and for others. Supplication is prayers for other people that we should be praying for one another. And what does he say? He says, at all times, in the Spirit, in agreement with the Spirit of God, in the power of the Spirit of God. And he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He tells us twice in this little passage, pray for other people, pray for each other, and stay alert in prayer. Our foundation is worship, word, and prayer. You can't remove any one of them and be a healthy Christian. Now notice, I said healthy. You can be saved. You can have a relationship with God. I'm just, it's not going to be as fruitful as, as, as it could be. And when I say fruitful, I don't mean that God's like, oh, I'm disappointed they didn't do this. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Those are the things that will be a part of your life when worship, word, and prayer are consistently a part of who you are and what you do. So when I say life won't be as fruitful as it could be, that means you're going to be missing out on love, on joy, on peace. That's what you're missing out on. It's not that God's saying you need to accomplish more or, or achieve some level of something that you know, you're able to measure yourself against other people as who's more righteous. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit that brings joy into our lives, that brings peace into our lives. And this is what Nehemiah has to reinstitute into this people. And so what does he do? He takes time off to do it. Notice he doesn't just jump right back in. Okay, everybody start building your, you know, your, your, your economy, start building your trade and do all this. He calls everybody together for days at a time, the entire city, and he says, everybody get comfortable. We're going to read. We're going to worship and we're going to pray. And they start doing that. And as they do it, and they start to focus themselves back in on God's word, and they start to understand again what God wants from them and how God has blessed them, things start to change. And they start confessing sin. And it says their own sin and the sin of their fathers. Like they start to realize like, guys, I think we've been wrong. God's word says this, and we've been living this way. Well, no wonder things have happened. And now they start thinking of their own history, and they're like, well, we've, we've been doing this for a long time, guys. We've been messing up for a long time. We need to fix that. We need to fix the actual problem. And so with worship, word, and prayer, there's also an element of this that we, it's just always going to be there, okay? And that is that we confess, repent, and learn. Every time. None of us is perfect. Amen? I mean, it, look, no perfect people allowed in this church. Okay? And you don't even get to pretend like you are. You see, we like to pretend sometimes. And I just, you know, if you find a perfect church somewhere, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. I guess they figured it out and, you know, the rest of us out here don't. But 
But what I'm saying is that we all are going to make mistakes. We all are going to get into the flesh at some point and do something that God does not want us to do. We all have sin. It's not about not having sin in life. It's about not confessing and repenting of sin. That's the problem. And if we will go to God and say, look, this is where I, I've blown it. This is my sin. And we repent and turn away from it and learn the lesson of what was involved. God will forgive. And that's exactly what starts happening. The more we are, the more we worship, the more we make the word a part of who we are, and the more we pray, confession, repentance, and, and learning the lessons are going to follow hard upon that every single time. Because you cannot spend that kind of time with God and not be convicted. Who here's kind of learned that? Who's here learned that if we want to hold on to our sin, what will we stop doing? We'll stop worshiping, we'll stop going to the word, and we will stop praying regularly because we're convicted. And we have to make a choice when we're convicted. What is that choice? Either go forward and, and repent, confess, learn from it, and move forward in life, or hold on to it and stop worshiping, stop studying the word, and stop praying. Because you can't hold on to both at the same time. They pull too hard, and you, you split you in two spiritually. It's too painful. It's too much. Now, God has intended it to be that way. He knows we're not going to be perfect. So he says, come to me, and I'll forgive you. And in fact, when I say you can't pretend, I mean that. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, what is it that we are most apt to do first in life? Deceive ourselves. You know, we're all the hero of our own story, right? And that's not always a bad thing, but, you know, the great equalizer is the truth. And when we come to the Word and we get into the presence of God and we start communing with Him in prayer, the truth is going to level the field in a hurry. And if there's sin in our lives, he's going to point it out. Have you noticed, other than being scared to death because an angel just showed up, anytime God starts dealing with people in Scripture, what is one of the first things that happens after they're done being afraid right there at the beginning? What do they do? Oh, I'm ruined. I, I've got sin. I'm, un, I'm not worthy. They immediately, when they are in the presence of God, people immediately become aware of their sin. You see it in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he's got this, you know, amazing vision of God on his throne. And immediately, what does Isaiah do? He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. I've, my eyes have seen, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. Like, the first thing he does is despair, because he, he's like, well, I've, I've, I'm sinful. I've seen holiness in its purest form. I have seen God, and I've got sin. You see, anytime we get into the presence of holiness, we become acutely aware of the sin in our lives. That's why I say we either will repent from it or we'll stop going into the presence of God. 
Because when we become that aware of our own failing, it makes us very, very uncomfortable, as it should. Now, what's the good news right here? Well, there's good news. You see, we have the bad news. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But look at what John says, the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, he says, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to make you aware of it, yes. I'm going to call you to confess it and repent from it and turn away from it, yes. But if you will do that, I'm not going to leave you in it. And, and I love this. What does he say? He says he is faithful and just. It's, this is just. This is a good thing that he's going to do. You are justified in his sight because of the death of Jesus Christ. He can forgive you without any other consequence against you. He's not going to hold a grudge. God isn't like, well, I know I, know I forgave you, but you know, I'm still disappointed in you. How many of you had, you know, they played that role in your life? I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed in you. And they play the guilt card over and over and over. God doesn't do that. When it says he is faithful and just, it's saying he's worked out all the details, and when he forgives, he forgives. It's over. But he doesn't just forgive, what does it say he does? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not going to leave you where you are. And that's why when people genuinely commit themselves to worship, word, and prayer, as Nehemiah is getting these people to do, that's why confession starts happening. That's why people's lives start changing. Because they start to realize the freedom that God is giving. And he's like, look, I'm not going to hold it against you. you got to stop. you got to confess and repent and turn away from it. But when you do... I'm going to take this further than you ever imagined, and I'm going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I'm going to give you that clean heart. I'm going to give you that clean mind. I'm going to give you a life that reflects my goodness and my holiness. Trust me, we're getting the better end of the deal here. And so what we've got to do, kind of like these people did here with Nehemiah, we've got to know our own faith story. We've got to be honest about it. The good and the bad. You know, if you're never the villain of your own story, you're not telling the story right. Because there are times when we've got to be able to look at ourselves and you know what? My fault. My selfishness. My sin. And God is the hero because he saved me from it. Because he opened my eyes to the truth of of the road I was headed down, of what I was doing, of who I had become. And he turned me away from it. And suddenly God is the hero who loves you and is always there for you. And that's exactly what the people in Nehemiah started to do. They started confessing, it says, their own sin, the sins of their fathers. They're starting to look at it and their eyes are being opened and they're like, wow, How long did they worship Baal? What was wrong with them? You ever notice how easy it is to see sin in other people? They started doing that, but then it was in the midst of their own sin. And they're like, you know what? We're messed up too. We're a part of this whole story. And this story has been messed up for a thousand years now. 
I think we need to fix it. You know what would never happen in Israel again? Baal worship. When God said he was going to end it, he ended it. And from this point forward, it would never happen again. But they also started to make real changes in their lives that reflected their new hearts. And this is how we know worship, word, and prayer, we are actually walking with God, is that in moments, I'm not saying every week is some kind of revolutionary act, but every so often, God's going to clean house within us. You ever experienced that? I mean, it, it's, it's not that you maybe had to wander way off, but every now and then, it's like God just has to do some spring cleaning. He's like, all right, we've, we've, we've kind of hidden some areas, and we've gotten really compartmentalized here, so we're going to just kind of open the whole thing up here, and we're going to clean out again, and you're going to get right with me. And we can fight it or we can give in to it, but God always wins. And so as we know our own faith story and we're honest about it before God, he starts to work within us and we start to see our own errors. We start to understand the difference between darkness and light. We start to understand the difference between sin and righteousness. And then it hits home and look at what they did. Okay, in Nehemiah 10, 30 through 32, what did he say? It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain in the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What is this? This is repentance. All the stuff that they never did, they're like, you know what? We should try that. We should do what God told us to do. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And so we're going to establish worship and we're going to make it a part of our culture. And we're going to stop doing this stuff that we just kept doing as a people for thousands of years. And we're finally going to realize it's a sin and we're not going to do it anymore. Now, in, in chapter 9, also, I want you to listen in verse 2 again. It says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. What has finally happened? There's no mention of Tobiah or Sanballat here. You know why? Because they finally gave them the boot. Get out. You don't belong here. You think Nehemiah enjoyed that moment? See, we don't get how it happened. But Nehemiah wrote and let us know that whatever entanglements they had with these unbelieving pagan people out here, they had finally severed themselves from it. Now, I, I kind of want more of that story just because I like those moments. But Nehemiah, God didn't think it was important. He just wanted to say, look, it happened. Did it cost some people something? Absolutely. They were bound by oath, which means they had to break that oath somehow. Maybe they had to pay large sums of money, and it's like, you know what? Just let me out of my oath. Well, I need this much money. Oh, okay. Give me back my daughter. You know, we, they just they ended all of these entanglements. They finally looked at their lives and said, you know what? I can't serve God and be a friend of the world at the same time. Here it is. And they, they cut it off. And it's summed up in one simple line of, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. Sometimes the Bible has a propensity for understatement. You know, Jesus fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. 
Well, yeah, he's hungry. He's almost dead. He's about to starve to death. And now they make an oath. Not only have they separated themselves from it, but they now have made an oath with each other that we won't get involved in that again. We won't do this. And so they are now vowing to protect their heritage as the people of, uh, of God. They are vowing to conduct their business in God-honoring ways. They are now vowing to follow God's design for their crops and to provide for their place of worship. What are they doing? They're ordering their society around the things of God. And so what do we do in our lives when God starts to do this? We start making these changes. We see, we just repeat this process as necessary. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's what we do. Because we're never going to get it perfect. And when God points out a sin, what do we do? We confess, repent, and learn from it. And we just keep going. And we keep worshiping God. And we keep getting into His Word. And we keep praying. And we just keep repeating this over and over. Because that is what faithfulness is. It is walking with God. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And in Proverbs 24, 16, I hope you take real hope from this verse. For the righteous falls seven times and what? Rises again. See what God's telling us? He's not saying that, well, the righteous, you know, stop falling and never fall again. What does he say? Seven times, that's the number of completion. What's he saying? He's saying you're going to be broken in life. You're going to mess up. This process is never going to stop. But what also is a part of this process? When you are a righteous person walking with God, doing your best, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. We'll keep going. We will just keep going. And so we don't ensure victory because we never make a mistake or never sin again. We ensure victory because we walk with the one who's already won. He's already won. He knows the path. He knows where it's going. He knows your path. He knows your life. And if you will walk with him, victory is assured. And so I want to ask you today, how well is your foundation established? Do you know your foundation? Is it established that this is what my life is about, this is all it will be about, and it is enough? Or has it started to get tangled up with the world a little bit, and maybe you're wondering who you are a little bit, and where God is? And then the second question with that is, where are you in your faith story? Maybe you're at a low point. That's okay. God has a way of reaching down at low points and making himself known and pulling you out of it in his time. Maybe you're at a high point. Soak it up while you can. Get every bit of God you can on the mountain because there may be a valley coming and everything you learned on the mountain you're going to need in the valley. But be honest about where you are in your faith story so that God can continue to move you forward.
Don't live in the past and don't assume the future. Know where you're at now. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, God, that you would help us to ensure future victories by knowing our foundation, by returning to it, by building, not trying to do new things, but, God, doing what you have called us to do. Not trying to reinvent the wheel, but, God, to simply committing ourselves to worship, word, and prayer. To confessing, repenting, and learning. God, that we would repeat this over and over in life, knowing that you are there to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God. That we wouldn't be discouraged, but God, we would have hope because of your grace, because of all that you have done for us. Lord Jesus, may our lives reflect your grace, your forgiveness, but also your holiness and the righteousness that you have given us. That we would no longer walk by, by sight, but we would walk by faith. Faith in the Son of God. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.